Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We've spent the last several months combing over my favorite novel, Jane Eyre. We've spoken to some of the world's greatest experts on the novel and wrestled with its brilliance and its shortcomings, as our ideological horizons allow us to currently see them. We've explored how this masterpiece somehow has been straddling the line of marginalized and canon for nearly 185 years. We've spent these last months exploring how problematic this novel is. We've looked at its pro-colonialism, pro-missionary racism. We've reckoned with the fact that it is about an 18-year-old girl and her relationship with a 40-year-old boss. So, here it is. Should I hand it to my beloved 13-year-old on her 14th birthday in a few months, the way that it was handed to me on mine? Or should we stop the madness kiss this book goodbye, and relegate it to the halls of Pamela and other books that we respect for their impact on literature, but would never hand to our children. As you know, we've asked several people for their answers to this question. You might remember Marlon James and his brilliant answer to his version of it. You know, as a black guy, a gay guy, a person from a former British colony, man, if I start going after books for shit that's offensive, there'll be no English literature. My problem isn't that these books carry on. My problem is that critical thinking has stopped. One should read Jane Eyre, but one should read it critically. And we have this idea, and it's an anti-elitist idea, that you can either enjoy a book or analyze a book. And that's bullshit. It's always been bullshit. I, of course, agree with Marlon James. And I still have concerns. I worry that this book is too powerful, that its alchemy works on us too well. And as a super consumer of romance novels, I, of course, always have to be in conversation with the fact that I wonder if good romance is patriarchy's enemy or ally. But I, of course, also believe that critical reading, reading in community, reading the way that Diana, Mary, and Jane read, the way that Lauren and I have been able to read, can handle just about anything. And there is enough truly radical in Jane Eyre that, in my opinion, it earns its keep. Here is Christy Harner summing up a lot of how I feel about Jane. My general approach to the novel is that it is both incredibly problematic and incredibly progressive at the same time. And I think 
those two things are in some ways inextricable from each other. I don't think it's fair to try to put the novel in one category or the other in the same way that I don't think it's fair to put anyone today into one category or the other. It's often messier than we want it to be. So the question, should I hand Ellen, the 13-year-old I love, a copy of Jane Eyre on her birthday in a few months? I already have my copy picked out. And if she decides to read it, her copy will come with a book club of me alongside of it. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is our last episode of On Air from Hot and Bothered. I mean, we are still going to talk about adaptations of Jane Eyre. And then we really, it looks like we're going to be able to move into Pride and Prejudice because our Patreon is going pretty strong, everyone. And we're so grateful. We are about $800 shy of our $4,000 a month goal. But Lauren, I do think that you are going to have to talk about Lydia Bennett with me for months and months. (laughs) And somehow I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) So we had this question about Jane Eyre, right, that we set up at the very beginning of this process that you and I have these 13-year-olds who we love and are wondering, you know, we got this book in early high school. Would we want to hand it off to the young people in our lives? And I'm wondering how you're feeling about that question now that we've finished reading this book. I think that the question has taken on new dimensions for me. And I think that as a question, I'm sort of turning my nose up at it a little bit. I am feeling the incredible benefits and blessings even of what it means to delve deeply into what is problematic about a text, specifically this text. I'm also feeling like You know, the 13-year-olds in our lives, like Sam and Ellen, are far more equipped to mindfully read this book, to know what doesn't pass their sniff test, to feel issues with imperialism, to be thinking about race in a way that even we were not quite as equipped to do as, as just a generation or two removed. I also feel like What is historical about this book is also part of what forms us, and we need that. And we don't get to just choose what our history is. And also, I have loved it more, this read, than I ever have before. And I think I have you to thank for that. What do you think? I have also never loved reading it more. So I want to thank you and Ariana and our amazing community for that. It could sound a little shticky, like girl reads her favorite book with woman who disdains book. But really what you've done, right, is is make me sharpen my thinking about these things and stop apologizing for certain things. Right. And just deeply acknowledge. Yeah, it's just messed up. And I've so appreciated that and found a tremendous amount of joy in that. And so I think my two big takeaways are one that I'm tired of separating out critical reading from joyful reading. I think critical reading is joyful. And so, you know, I think we just need to like normalize critical reading and say that looking up the source of what is mentioned is actually part of the game of reading, right? It's like going down a Reddit rabbit hole, but with 
a 19th century text. And that that is part of the joy of reading. That is not the antithesis of the joy of reading. The other thing that I have really realized for me, I'm going to come down hard on, yes, I absolutely think Jane Eyre should still be read. I think it should still be on syllabi. I think, you know, as much as I believe in a canon, I want Jane Eyre to be part of that discussion. And I want that to be a complicated canon. I want it to be a modern canon. But the reason that I think Jane Eyre still should keep its pride of place after all of these years is, you know, there's like that biblical idea of you know it by its fruits. And I think the fruits that Jane Eyre has borne are really incredible. I think that in the 1960s, Jean Reese writes Wide Sargasso Sea and is like radically reimagining this marginal character. And then in the 70s, we have Gilbert and Gubar responding to Jane Eyre and codifying literary second wave feminism. And then we have like in the 2010s, Patricia Park writing Rejane, which is this post 9-11 Korean American retelling of Jane Eyre. And I don't think it's inevitable that a text does that, that a text inspires such generative, interesting, progressive ideas, right? You and I have talked about this. Neither of us believe that the arc of the universe is long and bends towards justice. I think we have to bend it towards our will. And I think that the arc of Jane Eyre is being bent in really beautiful ways and is pretty continuously being bent in beautiful ways. So almost regardless of the source text, not regardless of the source text, but, you know, almost regardless of it, I just love the fruits of it. So I don't want to get rid of the text itself. I also think a lot about something that you have said, which is even if you haven't read Jane Eyre, it has informed you. And I think that 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 weights the importance of this book in significant ways, that what it has determined about what we desire, what power that desire has and what powers keep us from our desires this continues to be part of our narrative, whether it's in like a Hallmark Christmas movie or something far darker than that. Though I am sitting here thinking about how I was taught the canon in a way that one just accepts it as a given, right? Eating your vegetables was reading the canon, whether it was pleasurable or not. And it's interesting to hear you articulate something that I also feel quite deeply, which is that there is pleasure in critical reading, that the idea of having Jane Eyre maintain its place is not simply accepting it as is in the canon. It's about engaging in a different way. And that that isn't just a way of eating your broccoli. There's pleasure to be had in that. We Will you talk a little bit more? I'm so curious about how you experience pleasure in critical reading. By canon, I don't mean required reading for one and all. Like I come from the Doris Lessing School of Reading. And she said in her Nobel Prize speech when she won, she said something along the lines of like, the only way to read is to pick up the books that excite you, put down the books that bore you, skip the parts that your eyes are glossing over, right? And so if if Jane Eyre isn't exciting to you, like I don't think it should be required. I, I think we have limited time to read read what you want and read what you are drawn to. And I think that there is space for pleasure reading that is pleasurable 
separate from critical reading, right? I think that it's completely fine to pick up Alyssa Cole or Tessa Dare and just blow through it and read it when you are in bed after a long day or you're in the waiting room, you know, like any number of things. I don't think you have to be Googling, you know, I'm writing Duke by default. And what is the history of dukedoms in Scotland? And how problematic are they? Right. And I guess here's my thing. What I want to say is Jane Eyre is worth reading, even though I don't think that you should read it in the same way that I think it is completely morally fine for us to read Tessa Dare after a long day. I think that Jane Eyre, at this point in our history, with all of the people who've commented on it, the ambition of it and the stakes of its flaws, Tessa Dare, Alyssa Cole, Casey McQuiston, right? Like those books, you can read them critically or not. I do not think that there's like a moral need to read those with like a keen critical eye. But I do think that, A, we should read Jane Eyre, and B, we're morally obligated to read it with that critical eye. And I guess, and C, and that doesn't make it less fun. It makes it a different kind of fun. And yet I think there's something really interesting in what you're saying, because if it was the 1860s, 1870s, and we were reading Jane Eyre, we would probably, as two white women who had access to this book, feel really great about ourselves for reading this book and think that it was already doing the critical work for us. Totally. But history has shown us otherwise. And, you know, I, I as you know, I have not read Tessa Dare. I have not read Alyssa Cole. And I am not saying I won't, but I do think that it would be really interesting in a hundred years to go back yeah. and read those books and read them from, you know, a standpoint of who knows what gender is going to look like then. I mean, I'm thinking about how there's a revolution in gender happening right now, faster than the speed of thought, it seems, and also yet incredibly slow for many, many people. And thinking about what gendered romance is in traditional cis forms, this is something that in hindsight may seem like we absolutely need to read it critically. You know, we we can only investigate what is available to us and we need to be constantly pushing the bounds of what is available to us. But okay, so Vanessa, now that we finished the book, what really is this book about? What do you think this is really about? Okay, so I had an aha moment of what I think maybe this book is about. The book starts and is about a young girl who cannot find a place to read. And then it ends and it's about a woman who's found a place to write, which I think to some extent we could make the argument that like writing your own story is sort of the epitome of the ability to read, that when we're reading, we're trying to figure out who we are. And so that that is like the narrative arc I think maybe this novel is taking us on. I love that. I love that. And I'm not going to surprise you with what I'm going to say. I have a hunch, which (laughs) is I would say that Jane was ideally set up to be a writer when she inherited money and had Diana and Mary as her wonderful fireside group of readers. And so I do think that Jane's resistance to marriage could have landed her in a more opportune place as a writer. But it also is reminding me of a moment that I think about a lot 
You know, I went to graduate school at NYU to study with a feminist critic who I absolutely venerated named Ellen Willis, and she became my mentor and very, very close to me. And at the time, I was years into my relationship with Justin, but I just kept breaking up with him because it was it felt so safe. What was I learning? You know, it was a comfortable place to read. And Ellen, as this radical feminist, I just thought she would have the answer. And I think the answer that I was expecting her to give me is to say, yes, run from safety right on your own, live. And instead, she said, it is hard enough to be a writer. It is hard enough to be someone who is also wanting to challenge the system. Life is exhausting enough. Why not have a safe place to read? Why not allow yourself that happiness, essentially? And I'm still struggling with those ideas, but I do think that in many ways you are right and that that is the arc of the book and that maybe it is time for me to get over my crankiness or not. I really don't know. This is the big quandary of my life, Vanessa. (laughs) Well, no, I love you pointing out, right? Like there's sort of two places where this like arc could end and it, It has a mini ending, and the mini ending is the life that Charlotte Bronte actually lived. It is with the two other women in the house studying, reading each other's work, admiring one another's art. There's a brooding brother (laughs) off in the distance. And then there's this wish fulfillment ending that Charlotte Bronte did not get of returning to the one true love who, like, wants you back. And I think that this is actually what makes it a romance novel. She gets all the happy endings, right? Like she has Diana and Mary and they get together a couple weeks a year and have writing retreats or whatever, you know, art retreats. And she has help and she also gets the sex and the kisses and the sitting on the lap and, you know, and to feel perfect communion with this man. And it's it's one of my favorite things about romance is saying you deserve all of it, right? And I think the fact that we know that Charlotte Bronte didn't really get this and that it was a personal desire of hers speaks to the brutal reality of the fact that like, to some extent, we only get this in fiction, but this is what everyone deserves. They deserve the freedom to write, the freedom to have a living and the ability to love and have children. And this is the happily ever after. Right. And the Diana Mary permanent writing colony (laughs) that I was envisioning is one in which she doesn't get the sex and the kisses and the sitting on the lap. And obviously, I want her to have that so much. I'm infuriated that she doesn't run off to France. Doesn't it just make you so grateful for birth control? Totally. She could live with Diana and Mary and go (laughs) and like visit Rochester every day and have love in the afternoon (laughs) with Rochester. I mean, this book makes me grateful for so many things. Yeah, the notion that one would have to marry to have any of these experiences. And honestly, that is so recent. We don't have to go that far back to envision that world. And for many people, that still is, even if it doesn't feel like, you know, society is yelling it at them, we still internalize these stories. But... This is also part of why we internalize these stories, right, is this book's marriage plot and all of the marriage plots that it has sown. I feel so many different things about this book. I think the reason I keep reading it over and over is that I I almost feel like I have a relationship 
to it like I would to a person. All these things that excite me about it, all these things that disappoint me about it, all these ways that I want it to be better or different. It's so it's so multifaceted and human in that. And just as we care about different people in different ways over life, I feel that way about this book in many ways. But one of the things that I consistently feel is exhilarated by her anti-marriage stance and then somewhat sold out by it in the end. But You know, but that degree of desire and happiness that Charlotte Bronte makes so, so vivid and so real to me in those pages of flirtation and communication, especially at the end, I am willing to believe that this is actually what Jane's true desire looks like. And I want Jane to have what she wants. So do you think it's true love? Do you believe in true love? Do you believe that Bronte believes in true love and wants us to as well? Oh, Bronte 100% believes in true love and wants us to believe in it, right? She believes in the kind of love that articulates itself from hundreds of miles away. It can like break the laws of nature. And it doesn't matter that there's 20 years plus between these two people, right? Like race, creed, age, money, none of it matters because it is true love. And I believe in the construct of that reality within the the novel, but to me, it's almost like speculative fiction in that way. I do not believe in true love. I do not find the idea of true love romantic. And not only that, I think that I don't like the idea of true love for the same reason that I don't like the idea of God. I think it just justifies a lot of bad action. Often people who are in abusive relationships will tell themselves stories of true love. People who are breaking power dynamics, like we see in this book, tell themselves stories of true love. And so I'm very skeptical of the idea. Now, the question, of course, then becomes, don't I believe in a kind of kinship that you should be able to say society be damned? Like, yes, and I really don't want to entertain the idea of true love amongst a teacher and a student that just like, I find that really troubling. Or an employer and his 19-year-old governess. Yeah, I don't, I don't (laughs) like it. Right, like I think the novel believes in it. I guess here's my question back to you is, does it keep people company now when they are feeling heartbroken? If it in any way is instructive toward the idea of like, the world be damned, love your boss who's gaslighting you and manipulating you, then I'm like, nope, I don't like that. But if what it is is doing is keeping people company while they are heartbroken and while they feel as though they are entrapped in a situation with unrequited love and is allowing for their wish fulfillment, then I think it's great. I wish that I could sort of with a scalpel be like, do this and not that. But I think it's mostly a force for good Right. One of the things that I've been thinking about is that I am not a big fan of religion, as you know, but I am someone who sort of believes in love the way that I think people believe in religion. This is not a unique thought, this sort of God is love notion. You know, the whole concept that that for me, what my faith is, is akin to love and love in both a humanitarian sense as well as a platonic sense, a romantic sense, you name it. And I keep thinking about how Jane was in a place of love platonically, and it was this sort of supernatural Rochester's voice on the wind 
way of of reaching her that almost feels like, oh, there is there is this element of love being God here, right? That it almost feels like there's a, a biblical element, a, a theological element even that that draws her to him finally, that is outside the bounds of human understanding, that feels as miraculous and uncanny as anything that we might find in the Bible. And I do wonder if it feels like Love is part of the theology of this text. I mean, I still am trying to understand what the theology of this text is. Yeah, the theology of this text has always been really opaque to me. And, you know, when I first started treating Jane Eyre as sacred, I I did so in conversation with a Christian minister, Stephanie Balzell. And she also was like, yeah, it's pretty unclear, right? Like you can define a lot of things that Jane does and doesn't believe in. Jane Eyre, the novel, regardless of the narrator, Jane Eyre, the novel believes in just desserts. It believes that you, to some extent, it believes you get punished in this life. Brocklehurst gets publicly shamed. John Reed dies by suicide because of gambling debts. Mrs. Reed dies in pain and alone and in shame. And it's not that good things happen to all the good people, but Helen Burns at least dies at peace and in the arms of the person she loves most in the world, right? There's a grave injustice on the fact that she's a child and dies, but within that confine, she dies as peacefully as she can. Bertha, of course, is the great outlier of this and I think complicates all of the theology, right? And and Jane Eyre as a character complicates her theology. And then there's, you know, Rochester bringing in some paganism. There are a lot of theological ideas. I think that overarching the one that Amy Hollywood pointed out to us in conversation with her is that Jane believes that If your heart is good and Christian, good things come to you. And if you are merely performing Christianity or, you know, checking off the boxes of Christianity, that is not enough. But then you're like, what do you think about the soul of Bertha Mason Rochester? And it's just like not answered. Yeah, I mean, I think that many people felt that there is a different theology to be applied to the souls of people who are not master race in some way. And even though we know that Bertha was a white Creole, she's still infected by the winds of Jamaica. You know, that humidity got so deep into her dark hair that it's as though it has turned her into something different. And so I think that the imperialism and the racism that is inherent in this book, it feels to me like Like Bronte was a woman who's like, well, I'm an abolitionist, therefore I can't possibly be racist. So I'm going to use slave language to describe the plight of little Jane. And I'm going to create this whole narrative around Bertha and her madness and her sexuality and Rochester's experience. And that's going to be okay because I was against slavery. And I feel like we have so many modern versions of this, of, of you know, of liberal whiteness that that believes itself to be something other than what is rotten in its heart. And I think that that differing Theology is, in fact, what is rotten in the heart of this book. But then I do wonder how it applies to St. John, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and I get really tripped up on this, right? You know, I so want to read Bronte just selfishly as someone who isn't a believer in what Sinjin is doing. I want her to see the ideological imperialism of that sort of missionary work. I want her to have as much distaste for Sinjin wholesale as I do. And it's not just the very ending that puzzles me, but the fact that there does seem to be some veneration for for at least his his faith and his practice that just completely rankles me. What what do you do with that? The the best, most generous reading I can give to Sinjin is that Bronte was skewering him and then covering her ass, right? Was like, look at what an arrogant jerk this guy is. He is pretending that Jane has said yes when she hasn't. He is pretend, right? Like he is so manipulative. He's outright cruel. And yet everyone has to pretend like he's a good guy. And then she's like, but he was a good guy, right? So I kind of wonder if to some extent she's trying to have her cake and eat it too. She's trying to criticize this guy and this type of man without being considered a heretic, essentially. But, you know, like all we know is the document that's handed down and she forgives a lot of him. Well, I mean, he surely does not represent the same church that allowed Helen to die. Right. You know, thinking about Brocklehurst's sable coat and his daughter's frippery and the notion that poor people should bathe in cold water and be starved to death and not even have the right sewing supplies for their required sewing. I mean, that's obviously a very different engagement with the church. That's like the sort of haughty board member engagement with the church, whereas Sinjin, like him or not, and Lord knows I don't, he's clearly living it, right? He's clearly doing the work. He's clearly sacrificing himself. He's studying. He's denying life's pleasures. He's out there spreading white people religion where it feels hot and dangerous to him. And I don't like those things, but still he's walking the walk. And I do think that it is a very, very different place than what Brocklehurst is doing. It's a very different church than what Bronte is excoriating when she thinks about Lowood. I mean, the the big question to me is whether or not Bronte thinks that Helen and Bertha are just the cost of doing business, that like some people have to die for the rest of us to go free. And it's too bad, but that happens, right? Like there isn't rage at the fact that Helen dies or if there is, it's very much beneath the surface. And again, like all we get of Bertha dying is like her brains were on the cobblestone and, you know, she burnt down the whole house and that's amazing. But a lot of that I think is, you know, our 21st century reading really glorifying this thing that Bertha does. And so that is where the theology gets most problematic to me. Sinjin annoys the crap out of me, but Bertha and Helen the theology of them really troubles me. 
Though, is it theology or is it just what a novelist has to do to move the story along and make certain points? You know, does Helen have to die so we can see how bad Lowood is? Does Bertha have to die so that Jane can end up with Rochester and a Rochester who's more equal to her? I wonder where the where the theology is in those choices. Yeah, the way that I think about it is theological, right? Whenever we're dealing with someone's death and the reasons behind their deaths, Bronte is obviously someone who thinks that there is a real Christianness to the way someone dies, right? Like Aunt Reed summons Jane. Sinjin is saying, here I come, Lord Jesus. Helen, the last things that she's talking about is that it's okay because she's going to heaven. What's theological about it to me is that every other character is given at least some conversation around their death. But this white Creole woman, this mad woman, right, this alcoholic woman, this licentious woman, right, isn't. And that therefore the theology of the book is if you've committed one of these sins of not being born a pure white soul, we don't even need to deal with the repercussions of your death. We can just report it like it's the local news and move on. Or I guess you could think this is what is so troubling about the systems in place in terms of religion, in terms of social judgment, in terms of the economics of marriage and women's freedom, or maybe those things, especially in Victorian England, are inseparable, that it's theology driving systems and systems kowtowing to theology, theology oppressing women and then systems oppressing women, that there is this way of living that is considered to be granted by God as much as, you know, the imperial order of Britain is granted by God. And it's not just that supremacist religious thinking that leads to the creation of a Bertha. It's also that thinking that leads to thinking of Bertha as someone who, as a sexualized creature, needs to go mad, whereas Rochester gets to just sow his oats throughout Europe and then have his sweet virginal wife in the end. Yeah, which, Lauren, I mean, one of the things that you said that just clicked into place for me and that I cannot forget is the way that the book, and I really, I would argue maybe till my death, that the book does this unknowingly, but that the book lists Rochester's attributes and it's like, check, check, kind of a jerk, but also kind of hot, lists the exact same attributes and puts them under Bertha's name and is like, isn't she crazy? You know, it's like those studies where you have the exact same resumes, but a black coded name versus a white coded name at the top. And one of them gets the interview and the other doesn't. It is only revealing of the society in which it's written and not at all of the characters. I just cannot get over the way that I always saw Jane and Bertha as having a kind of relationship, but I'd never seen that before. And I really don't think that Bronte did it on purpose, which is all the more aggravating. (laughs) And one of the things that you really opened my eyes and my heart to is the relationship between Bertha and Jane. I mean, 
I saw the mad woman in the attic thinking of them as foils and challenged that. You know, I there's been a lot of thinking that's happened around Bertha's relationship to Jane, but never, ever before did I see a sisterhood there. Never before did I feel Bertha warning Jane. Did I feel the notion that someone was looking out for Jane and it was Bertha. That solidarity is something that was completely, completely missing in my reads until you opened it up to me. I would say that one of the other things, and maybe this is the most significant for me, that you have really shown me in reading this book with me, is how I do think that Jane resisted all the way. I mean, part of my frustration about this book has always been, as you've heard me say, that I feel her resisting until she meets Rochester. And then I feel that resisting sort of on a downward slope. And you have helped me see the extent of her resistance all the way through the end. And while I still struggle with the feminism of this book, you've given me a very, very different way of feeling and respecting Jane and especially how Jane felt and respected herself, how Jane was able to see systems that I thought I was seeing clearly through the whole book and was resisting systems that I was blind to. And so thinking about what this book is about, I think that if you had told me at the beginning of our conversations together that, you know, that sort of like Orwellian, the end is seated in the beginning notion of Jane resisting all the way, I think I would have pushed back really hard against that. I think I would have said she starts resisting and then she loses it and she becomes a sort of pushover prude. And that's why I, I don't love this book. But you have you've showed me a very, very different story of resistance. And I think a far more mature story of resistance than the one I was able to read myself. I mean, it's Joyce Carol Oates who (laughs) said it, right, that if there's a thesis statement of this novel, it's the first sentence of the second chapter. I resisted all the way. And it's how I was trained to write, right? You write your like introduction paragraph and then your thesis. And it's like chapter one is your introduction. And then here's your thesis. I resisted all the way up until the point where I'm writing this down. And yeah, I like that really opened my eyes to the possibility that this this book is essentially plotted as the moments of resistance and the, you know, sort of big skips, right? Like the eight years at Lowood, all of the thinking she does in her bedroom, you know, before she goes down to talk to Rochester. The reason that we aren't shown those is because there are moments where she's not resisting. And then the story picks back up when she's resisting again. I love thinking about the book Jane Eyre as a keyhole essay because I think it makes so much sense, especially when you think about, yes, you have each of those paragraphs, which are the body of the essay, which are resistance. But then you get to the conclusion (laughs) and the conclusion of the keyhole essay is supposed to open things up into a new discussion. And, you know, that really helps me understand why we end in the place that we do. (laughs) And we're like, maybe best to end the discussion without opening any new discussions, Charlotte. Well, Lauren, I just think that you and I should do this podcast again in 10 years because no doubt us in 10 years will have different opinions about this book, but this book will still be working, doing its thing. 
I think I said during the very first episode about why I keep rereading this book that it's like therapy, that you're supposed to go back to it anew every 10 years. Maybe we're supposed to do it together. Maybe we'll have like Jane Eyre's couples therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I must say... And this will feel cheesy, but it is true. I do feel like I have coupled with you reading this book. I feel like like this is my happily ever after is that we started this project and you asked me to join you in talking about your favorite book that you had just written a brilliant book about on a podcast devoted to a genre that isn't mine. And I just was so enamored with you and your brain that I said yes. And then I feel like, reader, I married you. And (laughs) it has been such an incredible way to get to know a person and their mind and their humor that I'm just really, I'm really glad that we have another one to look forward to. And maybe I'll feel less outclassed because you've not written a book about Pride and Prejudice yet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can't believe that there's a world where you reach out to one of your favorite writers and are like, do you want to spend a year reading a book with me? And they say yes. So everyone shoot your shot. It was a pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Everyone don't shoot your shot. The moment has passed. But I got in right under the wire. I mean, like jokes aside, right? Not only have I loved reading this book with you, but I believe with my whole heart that women have been reading this book together for almost 200 years. And so like Gilbert and Gubar did it 50 years ago and women before that, right? We are this new generation of Diana and Mary and Charlotte and Emily and Anne and the million of brilliant women in between, you know, I am incredibly proud to be part of that legacy and even prouder to be part of that legacy with you. And Lauren, I mean, the other thing, of course, is, and I I feel like people won't believe me when I say that this is completely coincidentally, but it is completely coincidentally, Not Sorry launched a chaplaincy program over the last year. And so I've had the honor of doing chaplaincy with Jane Eyre with 10 women over the last year and using Jane Eyre as a jumping off point, as a sacred text, as a Rorschach test, you know, to respond to with these women over the last year. And they have just taught me so much about the novel. They've proven to me how contemporary and inspiring and feminist the novel is. They have pointed to all of the places where it completely fails. And it's just been a really great joy to read this alongside not just you, but these other women, what a special year I've had with this book. And so we have ended every episode with an interview with an expert in the field that we've discussed. And we sort of feel like the the conversation that we've had in this episode is, is about groups of people reading. And so instead of an interview, what you are going to hear is several of the people who I've done chaplaincy with reflecting on what it was like to treat Jane Eyre as sacred for a year. Wonderful. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. After treating Jane Eyre as sacred for a year, I find myself grounded in Jane's strength and in her authenticity. I see Jane's strength in her ability to persist in the face of so much abuse. I see Jane's authenticity when Rochester tells her that she is an angel sent from heaven who will solve all of his problems, and she tells him, no, I will be myself. When treating Jane Eyre as sacred, I also notice Jane's naivete. When she pretends like her brain can overrule her emotions and she doesn't have to love Rochester, and all of the times she thinks she can be invisible. And when she tells Rochester that during their engagement, they will go on as they did when she was Adele's governess. At first, I found it paradoxical that a character so brave, stoic, and independent can also be this naive. On closer examination, though, I think this naivete is a form of hope that Jane draws on when she needs to make it through. The moment in the book I keep coming back to is when Jane is able to run from Thornfield after she first discovers that Rochester already has a wife. Jane's fleeing takes tremendous willpower, but perhaps the willpower is drawn from naivete in the form of hope. Hello, my name is Denise Leighton, and This year, Jane was accompanying me while I was thinking through a number of changes in my life. A moment that sticks with me is when Rochester is taking Jane up to care for Mason, and he takes her hand and he says that it's warm and steady. And warm and steady is something that I'm trying to embody in moments of stress and really um, try to bring through into my daily life. In November of 2017, my spouse packed a suitcase, called an Uber, and left our home forever. It was the worst day of my life, and the winter that followed, I went through the worst depression of my life. Depression is a black hole, and I don't remember much from that winter. But one thing I remember is an image of me lying on my couch in my dirty pajamas with my dog Ginger sleeping on my feet, watching the snow fall outside and reading Jane Eyre for the first time. I struggled with reading then because of the brain fog and because every book I tried seemed gaudy with pointless hope and aggressive life. But Jane Eyre felt different. It felt like a safe familiar hand in the darkness. 
I loved and admired Jane for everything I wasn't then. Brave and confident in who I was and what was right to do. I read and reread Jane's promise to stand with herself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself, she said. And those words felt like the opposite of the field of runes that I had become. But something true to yearn for. I remember being heartbroken when Jane decided to leave Thornfield and wanting her to stay because nothing was worth that pain, I thought. I knew what was awaiting her, and I couldn't bear what she was about to endure. I remember looking at the hundred pages that still lay ahead until Jane's return to Thornfield, and I wanted to just skip them. I didn't want Jane to go through that winter, and I didn't want to go with her. But in the end, we both did. We both survived the winter. This year, I'm rereading Jane Eyre, and as so much has changed for me, as so much has changed inside me, I feel a little closer to her silent, unshakable confidence in her own ability to stand with herself, no matter what. I feel able to take care of myself, to take care of the child I am carrying, and I am even looking forward for the first time to the winter. I am grateful to Jane for walking me to this place. So everybody, that is the end of On Air. We are just so honored that you came on this journey with us. Starting in 2022, we are going to move to an every other week format to make sure that this project stays viable for us as a small production company. So early in the new year, you will start getting episodes about adaptations of Jane Eyre, and those will be every other week until March 25th, which is when we hope to launch our Pride and Prejudice season. We are really close to our Patreon goal, and so if you can help get us there to the $4,000 a month, we really think that we are going to be able to pull off a Pride and Prejudice season on March 25th. You've been listening to On Air. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, who none of this would have been possible without. Our associate producer is Molly Baxter, whose research and early work on this podcast made it all possible. And we are distributed by Acast. We would like to thank every scholar, writer, and friend who has agreed to talk to us along the way on this process. With special thanks this week to Marlon James and Christy Harner, whose voices you heard at the beginning of the episode. We want to thank Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, all of our patrons, all of the people I've been doing chaplaincy with over the last year. And Lauren, I want to thank you for agreeing to do this really weird thing with me. I love you. And I'm so grateful. Well, and quite obviously, I love you too. And I have loved every minute of this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.